All right, good morning again. Who was here, showed up around 10 o'clock expecting the first service to begin? You don't have to raise your hands. Glad you stayed for the second service. I did tell the first service they get extra points, though, for being here and losing an hour of sleep. Um, We're in John 4 this morning, if you turn there with me. We finished the book of Hebrews last week. Uh, We have a few weeks till Palm Sunday, and we decided to give two Sundays to preach over two of uh, UPC's goals or initiatives. Next week, Mike will be preaching over uh, discipleship, desiring to see a culture of discipleship within our church. And this week, I'm going to preach over our calling to go to uh, college students, our calling to college students. And this was very challenging for me. It's a challenging sermon, to be honest. Um, there's no passage that speaks directly to an initiative to college students, right? I mean, there's not like a, and Jesus left the synagogue and went to the you know, University of Jerusalem. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, so it's difficult. You know, Mike, Mike got discipleship. I mean, you can basically close your eyes and, you know, point to a passage and he's, there he is. So I, I didn't think that was fair, but anyway... I think John 4 uh, has some really neat ministry principles for us all as Christians individually. And so I want to bring those out. But then I think it also we can we, we can draw some general some uh, specific principles on how our church is called uh, as well. So um, I hope you get excited about it. Let's read John 4. We're going to read 1 through 42. It's a long passage. It is God's word. So it is inspired. Hope you're encouraged as we read all of it. John 4, starting verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, which means it was about noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus asked her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty and have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I, I, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. 
What you've said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped here in this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be this, the Christ? They, all, they went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say there are four, yet four months and comes the harvest. Look, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is re- receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into, into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. But we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The reading of God's Word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious God, what an an incredible passage and it deserves so much. We have so little time. We pray, Father, you would do a great work to unrattle, to rattle us, convict us, reveal to us, the great harvest field we have before us. Convict us to go to it. Have a conviction to long that they may come to receive living water as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On May 19th, the year was 2000, I was in the middle of a, of a field with three of my best friends, along with 40,000 other college students. I had no idea that this day would significantly impact my whole life. I had come to understand the gospel a few years before this, but um, I was this is my last summer before I graduated, uh, a semester later. And I had been studying engineering. I was thinking of doing that. And I was also considering going on to the mission field. Um, I knew I could glorify God in either of those callings, but I was trying to figure out what does God want for my life. And that's when... A 55-year-old man named John Piper stepped up to a podium at a conference called Passion One Day 2000. 
I did not know too much about John Piper at the time, but the sermon he preached that day would impact not only my life, but a whole generation. It's become one of the most downloaded sermons of his career. He began began that sermon like this. You don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world. But you do have to know the few things that are great and be willing to live for them and die for them. People that make a lasting difference in the world are not people who have mastered a lot of things. They are people who have been mastered by a few things that are very great. If you want your life to count, you don't have to have a high IQ, have good looks or riches or come from a good family or fine school. You just have to know a few basic, simple, majestic, glorious, eternal things and be gripped by them and willing to lay down your life for them. That's why anyone in this crowd can make a difference. He continued the story to tell the story about two women from his church. One's named Laura and one's named Ruby, a doctor and a nurse. Around the age of 80, they had moved to Cameroon, Africa to love and serve the poor and the sick from village to village, to give their lives away, to make Christ known and glorified in one of the hardest places on earth. And about three weeks before this conference, he said their brakes went out on this road and their car went over a cliff and they both perished. And then John Piper asked this question. He said, is that a tragedy? And you could hear people from the crowd say, no. He responded, that is not a tragedy. He said, let me tell you what a tragedy is. And then he held up a a pamphlet of a reader's digest. And he said, Bob and Penny started to read it. They took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. And now they live in Florida where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball and collect shells. And he said, that is a tragedy. Now, I, I love the beach. I honestly like softball and I like shells. But I think the the reason why most Christians in my generation have heard of this illustration is because it powerfully brings front and center the inner struggle that most of us as Christians have. Because on the one hand, it resonates with us, this desire to to live with purpose and make a difference in life, to make our life count. Who wants to look back at the end of our lives and just have a a shell collection or, or a nice house and stuff? Most of us want a fruitful life that is not wasted. But on the other hand, I think most of us can relate with being tempted to buy into the American culture that presents to us the American dream of a satisfying life where we spend all our energy just to get people to like us and have a happy marriage and nice kids and, and, and long weekends and fun vacations. And Jesus, I see him pleading here with his disciples at the end of this passage to not do this, to not waste their lives. He has just finished up a conversation with an immoral woman who seems like like her life was going to be wasted, but then all of a sudden he gives her living water. And it changes her whole life and her whole eternity and her whole city. 
The disciples, they come back from getting food at the local food court and, and, and they are thinking, they all immediately think, well, whoa, how can Jesus be talking with this woman? And, and then, and then they think about what he wants for lunch and, and, and Jesus says, look, my food is to see a fruitful harvest from my life, from accomplishing the work that God has given me to do. A fruitful harvest. He's speaking in agricultural terms. He's comparing it to a, a farmer that drives out at the end of a farming season to look at his crops. I moved from Mississippi uh, before I moved here. We were there six years and there were lots of farming. And Harvest time was a joyful, satisfying time in, in the farmer's lives when they, if their crops bore a lot of fruit, when they would go out and they would see big bowls of cotton and huge ears of corn. It was, it was a joyful time. And Jesus is inviting his disciples and all of us to experience a deeply satisfying life by living to produce a fruitful harvest through it. A kingdom-oriented, an eternal harvest through our lives. In other words, Jesus didn't just come to save us from hell. He came to save us from wasting these short lives that God has given us. John 4 is rich and it deserves 10 sermons and 100 points. But I'm going to try to focus on just one so that the hope that God would rescue us from wasting our lives and giving it to the American dream. So we can live life to make a difference and produce such a harvest. I want to look at one, a calling, just a calling to look for this harvest around your life. A calling to look for a harvest. And then I want to end shortly with a motivation to look for the harvest. So let's look first at let's looking a calling to look for a harvest in your life. You know, I guess a lot of you enjoy shows like this. I do shows like Fixer Upper on HGTV. You ever seen those shows? Uh, my mother is here from in town, and so a fruitful harvest uh, year for her would be meeting Chip and Joanna Gaines. That would be her uh, harvest. Um, but the people who do these type of things are amazing, right? I mean, they go into these broken down houses that are just in shambles and, and, and then they make them into something beautiful and stunning. But in order to do this, their gifts is they, they see things that other people don't, don't see. They have to have eyes that look for opportunities that others don't look for in these houses. And that's why the owners always come back at the end and always, they're shocked because they, they couldn't have imagined what they could have done with that house. And this is exactly what's going on in, in this passage, actually. You see, in verse 35, Jesus tells his disciples, guys, lift up your eyes and see the harvest around you. It's, it's ready for a huge harvest. Now, knowing the disciples, they're probably looking around and being like, uh, the, the wheat field hadn't even sprouted yet. You know, what are you talking about? Because all the disciples talk like hicks. I'm Jewish hicks. Uh, even harvest. Um, but they're usually missing stuff. They probably didn't have a clue what Jesus was talking about. Jesus is obviously talking about something else here. He's talking about something they didn't see, that they didn't even know to look for. And here's what I mean. See, most good Jews, they saw Samaria as a place filled with an unclean people. It was an unclean, insignificant place that they should avoid at all costs. Samaritans were made up of Israelites who had intermarried with their Assyrian captors hundreds of years earlier. 
just after the exile. They even used a different Bible. And the tension had remained high for hundreds of years between the Jews and the Samaritans, which is why in verse 9 it mentions, hey, we, don't, we, don't, we avoid each other. We have no dealings with each other. So it's interesting to note in verse 1 through 4 that Jesus decides to leave Judea because of the super-religious Pharisees were squabbling over his ministry success. And it says that he had to pass right through Samaria. He had to. Now, that's not quite as it sounds. Because most good Jews, they would actually go around Samaria to the west or to the east. The Greek word, verse 4, he had to, is a very strong word. It means it was necessary for him to pass through there. It was extremely purposeful, you might say. So if you looked at this chapter from 30,000 feet, here's what you see. You see the Savior of the world that came to save and change the whole world, leave the religious Mecca, Judea, and Jerusalem. And then we get 40 verses where the story slows down of Jesus intentionally sitting down with an immoral, unclean, Samaritan woman. What's going on? See, Jesus had eyes that looked for a harvest in places where others were not looking for a harvest. And that's why he exhorts his disciples at the end of verse 35, Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see. There are fields around you that are ready to be harvested. I want to apply this in two different ways. First, to us individually, and then to our church as a whole. So first, looking for a harvest around you as a Christian, individual, or a family. I remember, um, I'll never forget the time where I was in seminary and I, I, in St. Louis, Missouri, and about four and a half hours north of Memphis. My family's from Memphis and I rode home with a friend to Memphis and I had to ride a Greyhound bus back to seminary, which I was dreading. Some of you maybe love Greyhound bus rides. That was not the case for me. Um, I sat in the back where there was a bunch of other young adults, and and um, I met a guy in front of me who had been cussing like a sailor uh, for about an hour or two. He told me that he had been fighting overseas um, with our army, and he had been shot in the head, and the bullet grazed off of his helmet. And then as we talked, he later revealed, he said, you know, I actually uh, became a Christian a few weeks ago. And I really am trying to figure out what that means. And all of a sudden, I wish time would slow down. And I needed a few more hours on that bus. We got close to St. Louis and a girl in her young 20s asked to borrow my phone. She'd been smiling the whole time on this trip. But I could tell something was going on underneath that wasn't right. And she explained, she'd been on that bus for 20 hours. She said, I burned all my... Bridges, family and friends in Texas to come up here to live with my new boyfriend. I'll never forget hearing on the phone uh, her boyfriend tell her, I don't want you here anymore. Get back on a bus and go home. By no means did I look on that Greyhound bus ride when I got on it as a harvest field, but it just took a little bit of engaging, a little initiation, a few conversations before realizing that it was. Most of you are familiar enough with this story of the Samaritan woman to know that this woman also was deeply wounded and hurting. 
On the outside, she just, she tried to smile and play along with Jesus. Oh yeah, I'll, I'll take some of that living water. I perceive you're a prophet. Let's talk about worship, the right place to worship. Are you into the Jerusalem thing? You probably are, you know, I'm into Samaria. Jesus knew that this lady was here at noon in the heat of the sun by herself for a reason. There's too much shame to go with the other women that went in the morning or the evening. He knew that she had been through five marriages, five men in her life that she had loved had died or either divorced her. You don't go through something like that without being deeply wounded. Taking on a lot of shame in the community and probably feeling very rejected by God. He then tells her the one you're with now is not your husband, which makes her an adulterer and all the more shame in that type of culture especially. And there are broken and hurting people like, a, like this all around us. And there is a calling, I see here, for all of us to look for them. Where we live, where we work, where we work out, where we play. Are we lifting up our eyes and looking for a harvest to be had right around us where God has placed you? I admit I find it easy to live day in and day out without looking for such opportunities. Do you relate? It's just easy to travel the path of least resistance in any given week. To travel around hard people and hard places and spend most of the time with good friends, good Christian friends. It's easy for unchurched and lost neighbors to become like the Samaria that I avoid. But Jesus demonstrates here that he has placed you and me particularly in particular places with and around particular people that are not insignificant and small. And there is a harvest to be had there. And oh, that we would open our eyes and look for them, that they also might receive living water and eternal life. But we also have a calling to do this as a church family, as a whole. So I want to look at the harvest we had around UPC. If we lift our eyes and look around our church, we'll see that God has placed... Our church right next to about 100,000 college students. About 65,000 students at UCF, 28,000 at Valencia, and that's just mentioning two of the schools. 6,500 of them are from, from overseas, other countries, representing 157 different countries right around us. This is our harvest field as a church. It was for this reason the session of UPC reclaimed the vision for college students as a primary focus of our church. I say reclaimed because reaching college students was always the part of the original vision of our church. I emailed uh, the founding pastor, Mark Bates, this week in order to find out about this. And he um, emailed back that he said, we actually planted here we, uh, because UCF was a, a, um, a primary reason part of our, our initial vision for our church, to be near UCF. Mark said that they, would, they thought they would actually, just because they were near UCF, and uh, naturally attract the students because they were here. He said they did not. He said they only had one student for the longest time coming, named Matt Limber. He came every Sunday with his bow tie on, which might be the reason no one else came. He didn't say that part. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Matt's my friend. I love Matt. 
Um, just picking. Um, I like bow ties too. Not as much as seashells, but anyway. Um, in 2008, um, our leadership continued this vision saying that they agreed that we must be a university church, among other things. They set a goal to, quote, reach UCF with the gospel and engage students, faculty, and staff in the ministry of the church. All this to say that this is not a new goal, but it's a reclaiming of an old one. And so I want you to see the way we're just saying a vision, a simple vision right now. We want to see a growing community of college students at UPC that are being loved and equipped to enjoy God and reach other college students. A growing community of students that are being loved and equipped to enjoy God and reach other college students. How exciting would it be if we looked up here at UPC and see a a harvest of college students living out a deep enjoyment of God and a passion to make Him known at their campus? Where they bleed it over into these sections. I know some of you here would be offended. You'd have to scoot over or whatever. Um, but wouldn't that not be exciting? Would it not create a vitality, excitement? I realize not everyone, we realize that not everybody can be all involved with this vision in the same way. Some of you have amazing ministry roles outside the church and inside the church, different roles. But I want to lay before you a few ways to get involved if you feel God is tugging on your hearts to get involved with this vision. So if you pull out your bulletin insert right here, it has five ways I want to go through. I want to just tell you about. Number one is our top priority, which is prayer. We would like to see a few people, actually more people, at least 14 to be honest, but probably more, so that we can have two or three praying every day. We have, we have an app. We have organized this through an app. We'll send you a reminder once a week on a particular day where you can pray for our college ministry as well as the needs of some of our students that they're giving us so their church can know that we are praying for them. I think prayer is a priority for a couple of reasons, but number one, every fruitful work, I think every major revival I've heard about has begun with a movement of prayer. And I get really excited to think about what might happen if a group, a large group of us might really... Be intentional to start praying, even if once a week. I think God's going to do something. But number two, because of this. Because I have this vision. I walk and pray on, on Mondays for college ministry and, their, and students. And I see, I get this vision of 65,000 students in this big, um, in a big um, stadium. And there are only a few hundred in the middle, standing in the middle of the field. And those few hundred represent the just the few, the handful of students that are actually involved at UCF on a co- in a college ministry. From everything I hear, that, hard, that campus is hard. It is a hard one to reach, and it will not be cracked. It will not be softened without people praying. So we need people to do that. Number two and three are greeting and providing snacks on Sunday mornings for students. As the vision statement says, I think priority number one is, is loving them well. I was convicted, uh, met with a student a few weeks ago, and he said, you know, when I first came to UPC with my, my parents, um, I came one or two times, and we sat over here, we were greeted several times. He said, then my parents left, I went and sat with the college students, and um, I, I, I can't think of one time the adult has come over and greeted me. I was like, oh, man, <laughs> how can we do this without starting with just, let's love them here this morning. Now, I don't think it'd be good if like, you know, a hundred people rushed over there after church. It might even run some of them off. <laughs> um, but a, a fruitful harvest will begin with us looking up and loving them 
here and now. Number four, those of you who love, to, who love well through cooking, we, need, we have one college lunch and one to two college dinners every month. And um, we'd love to find one or two people to help with that, our families. Number five has to do with relationships. We're looking for a few families or individuals, uh, a few life groups, even three to four life groups to adopt a student. I thought Lauren's testimony was awesome on that, the need for that. So if you uh, want some college students to come over, even a, a girl came over, a college student, after the first service, and she said, um, I am desperately wanting somebody to, uh, to do that with. Uh, I'm uh, a college student that doesn't uh, do as good in groups, but I would love for an older couple to mentor me and just to see them, how they raise their kids and stuff. And I'm like, oh, yes, I think we're going to have people sign up and do that, and I will get back to you. <laughs> um, if you're interested, and also, and then lastly, um, disciple. Some have a desire to be discipled and mentored. So if you're interested in any... Just learning more information about these. This is not committing you. Mark one of these boxes and put it in the box as you go out the door or the ministry table that's outside. You can hand it to Caleb, who is our, our college intern. I feel, we feel as a church, it is time for us as a church to lift up our eyes and see that God has placed UPC in the middle of a harvest field. A sea of thousands of students and they present an opportunity to make an incredible difference, not only in East Orlando, but the whole world. As Bill Bright, founder of Campus Crusade, now called Crew, once famously said, if we can win the campus today, we'll win the world tomorrow. This is our opportunity. I don't know if our church, I don't know if our church will be a sowing church or the reaping church like Jesus talks about at the end of this passage, verse 36, but I... I do know that this is our harvest field and we're called to look up and engage it. Now I want to end just a few minutes on the motivation. What is our motivation to look up for a harvest? To do this? I want to give two real quickly. Number one, how satisfying this harvest is. How satisfying this harvest is. I think it is very important to note that what Jesus is calling us to do is not out of, it's not out of duty and obligation. He's not just saying you should go do this. It's something that he's saying, you want something that will deeply satisfy your soul, bring fulfillment to your life. This is what you're called to do. I think this because of what he says in verse 31 through 34. The whole conversation's about food. Anybody been to a Brazilian steakhouse? I love those things. I mean, I think it's because I love meat so much. Um, Especially the little, you know, fillets with bacon around them. Anybody getting hungry for lunch? Hang in there. Um, But could you imagine, could you imagine going to a Brazilian steakhouse and just, and just eating salad? Just going up to the salad bar and, you know, grabbing some, a little, some little lettuce pieces or whatever. Um, you keep that little card they give you on red, and, and then, you know, you let all the chicken and steak awesomeness pass by you while gnawing on a piece of iceberg lettuce. You got that picture in your mind? <laughs> now, I know for some of you, you can't relate. you vegetarians, okay? You have to imagine that salad place, restaurant, wherever you go, uh, just gnawing on a crouton or something. <laughs> I don't know what that is, but um, yeah, I think you got the... I think you get the idea. Regardless, it would be deeply unsatisfying, right? 
the meal would be incomplete. And I hear Jesus here telling us all that living a life of an American dream is deeply unsatisfying and incomplete. It will not ultimately fulfill you. Avoiding the lost and hurting and poor people all around you will be like living without the meat or the crouton or whatever. On the other hand, if you will lift up your eyes and look around you, if you will risk stepping out of your comfort zone, heading due north into somebody's life around you as though it was necessary for you just to initiate, to start a conversation, just say hello, how are you, and listen, it will potentially lead to a a very satisfying, fruitful harvest in us. There's a time in seminary where I was smitten with this girl. And I, uh, I, we would be good friends for about two years, and I became convinced at one time this, in our friendship that this was to be more than friendship. And um, I, for a co- uh, couple weeks, I actually prepared to let her know this. And, and then when that night came, I went over to her apartment, and she communicated to me that she was not convinced of that. <laughs> and that ended that. So, of course, I am extremely thankful for that now, because I have the best wife ever and best family, so... Make sure you know that, as I say uh, that. But I'll let you know that I left there that night um, hurting and feeling empty and incomplete. And, um, and there was a hospital on the way home. And I, I pull up to this red light. It was late at night and nobody was around. And there was this guy walking right beside my car. He was close enough to where I was like, well, it'd be awkward if I didn't talk to him almost. My windows were down, beautiful night. So at the red light, I just turned to him and I said, hey, how you doing? I'm from the South. It's not actually a real question. It's just saying hello. Um, and he, I'll never forget, he kind of glanced over me with his head down and he said, I'm not doing well at all. Which is also a strange answer because nobody ever really says that. You always say, I'm fine, thanks, you know, whatever. So I said, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. What's, what's going on? I'd probably already missed, I think I'd already missed a green light by this time. And um, he started to explain that his girlfriend I just had a baby in the hospital right, right there, and he pointed to it. He said, I, I'm the father, and she just told me that she doesn't want me involved at all in their lives. I was like, wow. This was by far the most interesting conversation I'd ever had at a stoplight. But with no cars behind me, and the light turning red and green a few times, God, God gave me the opportunity to encourage this man, and gently tell him some of the hope offered to him in the gospel. And as I left there, Matthew 6, so vividly, like a bright light shone in my head, where Jesus says, Do not be anxious about your life. Is not life more than food and what you drink, what you wear? Is not life more than that? I felt a deeply satisfying fulfillment in my soul. Is not life more than a girlfriend or, or even a family? Or marriage. Your heavenly father, he says, knows that you need all these things. But you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you. Jesus is demonstrating that a living, a full and satisfying life is more than physical food and drink and houses and cars and even family. And the more that you live your life in the midst of these things, in the midst of those things, to produce a a harvest, seeking first his kingdom, in big and small ways where you live and work and play, 
It will deeply satisfy your soul just like food does our bodies. That's how it satisfies us. And lastly, how Jesus looked for a harvest. I'll look at this. We we just cannot miss this in the passage like this because we can't miss that. We can't see our. We can't miss seeing ourselves in this story. Jesus stands before all of you, one hundred percent prophet. He may not ask you go grab your husband, but he may ask you, hey, tell me about your sexual morality this week. Tell me about your selfishness. Tell me about your pride where you look down on those people this week. I tell you what, I, I already know about it actually. There's not one of us who doesn't have a hundred things that would make us bow our heads in shame like this woman. And there's a thirst in every one of our souls to know that God could know this about us as 100% prophet and still deeply love us, make us clean, draw near to us, slow down and sit with us and want to be with us. Man, it's motivating to know that Jesus came and resisted the temptation to waste his life. To, to live for physical food like Satan tempted him to. And live an easy life just to be liked and glorify himself. He didn't waste his life, but rather he headed straight north. Fixing his eyes upon a place that he could take all that is unclean about us and be executed for us. He was punished for this woman's adultery. And he was punished for your and my sexual morality and pride and everything else that makes us unclean. And when we realize that Jesus did this because he so loved us, he had to go to a cross from us, for us. He found it utterly necessary. Doesn't it make you want to go and live a life to make that known to others? This woman left there so full of life, so free. She didn't need evangelism training and apologetics training. She just said, come and see. It was so life-giving. And God has placed you and our church in a particular place around a particular people in order to have a fruitful harvest. Let's look up and leave here hungry for God to produce that harvest through us. Let's pray. God, there is a great possibility that we will hear this calling and step out of these doors and be swept along into the pursuit of the American dream. That we'll not satisfy us here or later and i pray lord that you by your grace would rescue us from that and let us experience in the smallest of ways in the smallest of conversations maybe this fruitful harvest that you are inviting us into and would you also as a church help us have such impact among these college students in jesus name amen Amen. Let's stand together and respond. Our song of response today is a song called The Reward of His Suffering.
touch her the bride you love.